Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Ziani Bat, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Ben Seeger-Scott, Head of Multi-Asset Funds at Tilney Group. Every year, we update the IC Top 50 ETFs, a list of the exchange-traded funds, ETFs, we believe are among the best options for building a low-cost portfolio of passive funds or complementing a selection of active funds. This year's newly updated list includes 60 new entrants and features a range of funds that we think could be used as core, satellite or niche investments. But before you consider investing in ETFs, or any other funds for that matter, it's very important to understand how they work and what they invest in. So Ben, first of all, what exactly are ETFs and how do they differ from more common types of funds such as open-ended investment companies and unit trusts? Well, really, exchange-traded funds are just an instrument and a a method of getting access to these funds. It's important to remember that ETFs are open-ended funds in and of themselves. So at a structural level, the primary difference is the way you access them, and that's through the stock exchange rather than primarily with the fund group. Or if you're on a platform, then the platform will engage with the the fund group once a day. With an ETF, whilst they're open-ended, they trade throughout the day. So that brings with it various exchange factors. So you need to consider trading costs, elements such as premium and discount. Those tend to be a lot smaller for ETFs, but they do still uh, still exist. And also bid offer spread. So the additional considerations when it comes to trading on an exchange. I think a lot of investors tend to conflate ETFs with passive investments, because overwhelmingly, most ETFs at the moment are passive or some sort of systematic. There is no reason that an ETF has to be passive. They lend themselves quite well to the strategy, but increasingly we're starting to see some active ETFs as well. Okay, that said, you did say that most of the ones, uh, say certainly in London, are passive funds. So why would an investor want to invest in a passive fund and basically track a broad index of the price of an asset rather than try try to perform it as they might with one of their active funds? Simply put, it is very difficult to consistently outperform outperform an index. A lot of academic literature suggests most active managers fail to outperform an index over the long term. But I think even logically, that makes sense. If you consider an index to be the average of all the investor positions, effectively your, your average investor, so by definition, half are above average and half are below average. And then once you take into account costs, by definition, simply following that logical progression, you would expect most active managers to underperform in what is a zero-sum game. So that's not to say there aren't good active fund managers out there. And obviously at Tilney, we do a lot of research to identify very good managers. But I think the, the challenge is identifying those, and it is very difficult. I think a lot of investors, rather than playing the game and trying to take on that variability in return around an index, will simply say... I will just get broad exposure. Really there, you're harnessing uh, the market risk premium. If you diversify very broadly, equity markets in particular in the long term tend to be upward moving with a high level of risk around it. Rather than trying to find a good manager, you can just get broad market exposure, take that risk premium and simply not engage in that variability of return. Okay, so um, what are the other benefits of uh, investing in ETFs? There are a number. I think one of the the key benefits, a lot of it comes around some of your trading options. So with uh, an exchange traded fund, you can trade throughout the day, any time the stock market is open. 
So if you say on a Friday afternoon, you suddenly decide, actually, you see a lot of risks coming through in the market, you might want to be in the market or be out of the market, you can trade that at any time during the day. Whereas with a traditional fund, normally there's just one pricing point, it tends to be around midday. So once you've traded, that's it. So you're limited a little bit there in terms of your tactical trading uh, opportunity. But also, I think one of the core benefits for most traditional passive ETFs is that they're very low cost, uh, they're simple and transparent. You can get an ETF tracking a pretty mainstream index for less than a tenth of a percentage point. So very cheap, very simple uh, and easy. But also, I talked about trading. You can do some more sophisticated strategies. So out there, there is the opportunity for short and leveraged ETFs. Now, they are a bit more sophisticated and require careful handling, but they do exist. You can also get more targeted exposure. For example, you can target sectors and countries, which is a bit harder to do with, with an active manager, I think. OK, um, on that note, then, are there any particular types of assets that ETFs are particularly good for investing in? Well, I, I, I think ETFs lend themselves, and passives in particular, lend themselves to large liquid markets that are typically considered to be a little bit more efficient areas where active managers struggle a little bit. That tends to be UK large cap equity, US large cap equity are very popular areas and do lend themselves quite well. Government bonds and areas such as gold. Technically, gold is not an exchange traded fund, it's an exchange traded commodity. There are some technical differences, but those areas that it's difficult for an active manager to add value and where there's liquidity do tend to lend themselves very well to exchange traded fund use. Okay. Um, now, do you hold any ETFs in Tilney's multi-asset funds? And I mean, what role would you say, if the answer is yes, do they play in your portfolios? Well, fortunately, the answer is yes. They in our, in our core portfolio range, they really play two different roles. One is around liquidity. You know, these are uh, areas where you can get liquidity so you can trade relatively quickly. You can use it for implementing tactical asset allocation calls quickly and efficiently. We also use them in areas where active managers tend to struggle. So those are two different areas very specifically. We also have um, a passive range that obviously uses a lot more ETF exposure as well. And burning question, do you hold any of the IC top 50 ETFs? Uh, I do. There's two in particular. And actually, it's useful. It ties in with those two points very specifically. So on the list, the iShares Core FTSE 100 use its ETF for exactly the same reasons in the magazine. It is very cheap. It's very large and liquid. And that liquidity helps keep those additional costs. So elements such as the the bid ask spread much tighter. So something like that, because we have a significant exposure to, to the UK market, that cheap, efficient um, ETF really lets us trade nimbly and reflect our tactical exposures very specifically. So that's about liquidity. I guess it's a good core holding, isn't it, as well? I mean, the FTSE 100 is it's kind of a basic building block, really, isn't it, for a lot of UK investors? Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. It's a good starting point. There are good active managers <laughs> in the UK, but if, you're, if you don't want to spend the time and effort to, to find those, and it can be difficult, that is going to get you core exposure to what many investors will consider their, their core market. One of the other areas we also have exposure through, so I talked before, it's about liquidity, but also areas where active managers struggle. I found it very difficult to find, particularly in the US, equity income where a manager can consistently outperform. It is a a very challenging market. So from that regard, we use the SPDR, the SPIDER, S&P 
US dividend aristocrats that's also on the list. It provides a good level of equity income yield, but importantly, because it looks for its strategy invest in those companies that have increased their dividend yield each year, that is good in terms of allowing you to access some of the growth in the market, but it also acts as an element of a quality filter. So not companies that might pay a high dividend one year and then stop, but it really speaks to the, to the quality. Okay. Now, we've talked a lot about the benefits of investing ETFs, but there's always two sides to a story, isn't there? So what are the main risks of ETFs? I, I think that there's several risks to consider. Perhaps first and foremost, I would really highlight liquidity risk. You are limited ultimately in terms of liquidity of an ETF by the liquidity of the underholding asset. There is no magic ability of ETFs to suddenly make an illiquid asset class um, liquid. Now, I think the reason some people get confused in this area, it can reduce the frictional trading costs. So if you want to sell a particular asset class and I want to buy it, particularly areas like high yield bonds in a two-way market, we can trade an ETF and, and that surface level there's a lot of liquidity. The problem comes if lots of people are buying or selling, at some point you need to be buying and selling a less liquid asset class. And I think if investors don't fully understand the liquidity profile of the underlying asset class, that's where, where challenges can come in. Um, but there are there as, as well, there's exchange risks. So you need to be familiar with trading on exchange, particularly if you have challenges in secondary market. If you have a market uh, that's dislocated and not functioning a efficiently these trade on exchange. So you need to be sort of conscious on that. And of course, user risk. If you're buying an ETF, all of the onus is on you. There's no human active fund manager to say, okay, I see dangers here. I'll put some assets to work in this area. It's all on you. You have to understand what that ETF is doing in fine detail. And really it, the investment strategy is on your head. Okay. So picking up on that then, are there any kind of investors that ETFs probably aren't a good idea for? Um, I, th I think it depends on, to some extent, the investor and to some extent, the ETF. As an investor, if you're going to trade ETFs, you need to be comfortable trading on exchange. There are additional points to consider, the bid offer spread we talked about, particularly trading costs. Trading costs are often fixed. So that can mean for smaller sums, those trading costs tend to be higher. But for larger sums, that, that relative cost is, is somewhat lower. So you need to be comfortable um, dealing with brokerages, dealing with uh, on-exchange issues. You also need to understand the investment strategy in detail. Something like a FTSE 100 ETF is probably going to be relatively straightforward. But if you want to get factor exposure, maybe you're looking for a value tilt. So you might well say, fine, yeah, I think value's good. Okay, what measure are you going to use? Price to book, price to earnings, forward or backwards looking. You really need to be able to get into the detail of the strategy um, if you're going to be invested in some of those areas. And also if you're going for slightly more sophisticated areas, long short equity or sorry, short equity or leveraged ETFs, those can be much more complicated. And really you'd have to be, I think, a more sophisticated investor to really use those effectively. Okay. Um, and um, are there any areas that perhaps ETFs are not so good for and that you might be better investing in via an active fund? Uh, I think it really sits along a continuum between the, the best areas and perhaps the more challenged areas. But I think areas such as alternative investments really are likely to remain the domain of active management for a long time absolute return type strategies, infrastructure, physical property, those those more alternative areas, it is difficult for ETFs to, to replicate effectively. 
Also, the less liquid and less efficient areas of the market, so small cap, some of the niche investments, areas such as your, your sort of deeper ESG type, type investments, it's going to be difficult, I think, for, for ETFs to replicate anytime soon. If you, um, if you can invest in ETFs and want to do it, before you go ahead and do it and you're choosing a fund, what features of the ETF should you check in particular before committing any money? Well, it is good to have a checklist. And at Tilney, before we invest in any ETF, we have quite a long checklist. But I'll just sort of highlight some of the key areas. Firstly, it is understanding the index and the methodology. So what's the index doing, but not just how it works, what are the consequences? For example, you talked about value investing and value factors. So a lot of people say, yes, I understand value. You're just buying cheap stocks. But do you understand the consequence of those for example, a lot of value tilted factors have higher financials exposure. So it's really understanding in detail the methodology. When it comes to the structure of the ETF, the areas to consider is firstly its structure. So is it physically replicating or does it use some form of synthetic or derivative route to investing that can make it more complicated? Where is it domiciled? If you have an ETF that's domiciled, for example, in the US, you might be subject to withholding tax if you're, if you're a UK investor. So where it's domicile can have important considerations as well. Any particular good domiciles to look out for with an ETF of a UK investor? Because as I understand, there aren't actually any domiciles in the UK. So it is a case of looking abroad. Yeah, that, that for a long time, it was functionally impossible to domicile mm. an ETF in the UK. The government changed the rules a few years ago, but a little bit too late because everyone has yeah. their structures yeah. uh, in, in other markets. Yeah. Luxembourg and Dublin yeah. tend to be tend to be the, the most favoured, yeah. um, in particular. And, mm-hmm. and again, I note it, mm-hmm. it is in the the top fifty ETFs. There is a double taxation agreement between mm-hmm. the US and Ireland, and there isn't between the US and Luxembourg. So yeah. a lot of US ETFs tend to get domiciled uh, mm-hmm. in Dublin. But Dublin and Luxembourg are sort of go to centres for legacy reasons. Though yeah. there have been some uh, some in other jurisdictions. So. Nine times out of ten, if you go online, you'll be able to see it's Luxembourg mm. or it's Ireland, but it is if worth it's checking. With London listed ETFs, and I think maybe make clear to our listeners, a domicile is completely different to a listing. So we're obviously talking about London listed ETFs. Yes. But these ETFs are domiciled mostly in Dublin and Luxembourg, and a domicile is different to um, the actual place of listing. Yes, yeah. ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the domicile <clears throat> is where effectively mm. the fund is based yeah. and then it can trade on many exchanges the same mm. way that a company can have its operations in one country yeah. but be listed listed elsewhere. So you do need to look through, see where the fund the fund is actually sitting. sitting yeah. And just again, for the sake of our listeners, I will add that our IC Top 50 ETFs are all London listed. So no problems, they're all listed in London. Absolutely. So, so that's around domicile. The other areas to consider are costs. Uh, and again, very important to look at the total cost of ownership. So not just the investment charges, you need to consider elements such as the, the bid offer spread. It's also worth looking at any of the premium discount if you can get that sophisticated. But really considering it in the whole, how long you're going to hold it for will also be a consideration. Uh, and as well as that, the important element I would I would stress is around reporting status. A lot of ETFs will have UK reporting status, but this is an important differentiator. Reporting status means that any uh, gain or loss can be taxed as capital gain. If an ETF doesn't have reporting status, 
then all of those returns will be taxed as income. And that can be an important tax consideration as well. So I look for that. And finally, I look for their securities lending policy. Do they engage in securities lending? That is where the ETF can take its existing stocks that are in the ETF and lend them out for a return. Now that, on the one hand, provides more revenue to the ETF, which is a benefit to, to the investor. It also introduces further risk. So I just take a look, see what level of securities lending your ETF engages in and just decide whether or not as an investor you're, you're comfortable with that. Okay, thank you, Ben. That was really, really helpful. Also see this week's Investors Chronicle or the website to see which of the funds we've highlighted in this year's edition of the IC Top 50 ETFs. Investors who draw regular income from their investments often focus on UK equity income. But if too much of your income comes from a small number of holdings, you could be at risk of a fall in your income. Zayani, you've been looking at this problem. What are the risks of being too focused on UK equity income? Well, firstly, if too much of your income comes from too small a number of holdings, then you're at risk of income concentration. So if one of the holdings fails to pay dividends, then you're at risk of a fall in your income. But also, currently, there's a lot of political uncertainty in the UK, what with Brexit and um, (laughs) (laughs) Theresa May's resignation. So that could cause fluctuations in the share price. Where else could investors look for equity income? Well, a good place to look at is continental Europe. Continental Europe funds are a good solution because... There have a num- there are a number of global companies with strong brands that pay dividends, and one example of which is Nestle. Okay, so um, how can investors get access to these um, European listed global multinationals? So one fund that's a good example of investors to tap into is the BlackRock Continental European Income Fund. Um, that's managed by Andrea Solinga. And the aim of the fund is to have an income that's above the yield of the European equity markets and have capital growth over the long term. Just specifically, how does um, Andreas go about trying to generate uh, the income this fund pays? Mr. Solinka looks to invest in three different types of companies primarily. Um, the first are companies that have a high and secure yield. The second are high dividend growth companies with low yield. And the third are quality companies that offer solid yields and predictable dividend growth. It's about having consistent yield, but it doesn't have to necessarily be high. Okay. And um, has this approach been successful? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The fund has an attractive yield of 4.2%. It's also consistently outperformed its benchmark, the FTSE developed Europe, um, excluding UK index. Um, And in most years, the fund has made double digit total returns. The exception to this, of course, was last year, when both the fund and the index underperformed and made negative returns. But this was because of concerns with weak European economy, US-China trade tensions and Brexit. And you can read her full article on BlackRock Continental European Income Fund in this week's Investors Chronicle of a website. That brings us to the end of today's show, but also see this week's Investors Chronicle of a website at investorschronicle.co.uk for more on ETFs, European equities and investing for income. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.